Welcome to Comic Book Podcast Pilot Season, Day 11. Today we are taking our second look at the Golden Age era of comics, and this time we're looking at Silver Streak Comics, Issue 6. Now, this issue was chosen because I'm a huge Daredevil fan, and it's the first appearance of the Golden Age Daredevil, who was a somewhat influential contribution to the Matt Murdock Daredevil. As we'll see when we get to that particular story, there have been a few changes. I say that particular story because this is one of the classics of the Golden Age. There are ten different stories contained within this single issue. Nine of them are comic stories, one of them is a prose piece. Because this is all public domain stuff, as always, the comics that we're talking about in this particular podcast are the ones we pull from digitalcomicmuseum.com. Highly recommend the site. They go through and vet everything before it gets posted to make sure it is in the public domain, and then they host it and offer it available for free download. If you have any interest in comics, especially from that era, go check them out. But because these are in the public domain, we have a little more flexibility on what we can do. So this particular podcast is going to be in a different format. It's not just an MP3 format, it's an M4A format, which means some of the older or cheaper MP3 players will have a difficult time playing it. But if you're on iPods or some of the other more advanced players, you should have no problems playing it. You should also notice that there are chapter stops and images on the screen going along with this one. At least that's the idea. I'm obviously recording it before that's happening, and I'm trying it for the first time. So we'll see how that all plays out. But in any event, that certainly is the ultimate goal. So that's enough of a preface. Let's move on to the first story. The first story in Silver Streak Comics number 6 is an 8-page story starring the title character, The Silver Streak. This one has an on-screen signature of Ralph Jones. That's actually a pseudonym. This was written, penciled, and inked by Jack Cole. Jack Cole is probably best known for his work in police comics creating Plastic Man, or Patrick Eel O'Brien. In this eight-page story, we learn that the Silver Streak apparently has a publicly listed phone number, since Sir Cedric Baldwin feels that he with his plane is faster than anyone else, and just calls up the Silver Streak to challenge him to a race. The Silver Streak initially says no, he's not interested in a race, but when he's called a coward, he agrees to participate, and he shows off a little bit by racing down the phone lines and accepting the challenge in person before racing back to hang up the phone. The race begins, and while the Silver Streak is out there, he encounters some Nazi soldiers and pummels them quite handily on his way through. Next up, he runs into a crying woman in the Middle East and learns that her husband has traded their daughter into a harem to pay off a gambling debt in the Arab part of the world here. Unlike last week, these people are drawn with proper human proportions, which initially seem like a step up in the treatment of, well, they call them minorities, but they're only minorities to those of us in North America. But that idea of you know, treating them as people and not as the caricatures that the minority groups typically are is, I think, completely undermined when the Silver Streak meets the Sheik who has obtained this woman for his harem in this gambling debt, and we see that she's drawn as Caucasian, even though her parents most clearly are not. In any event, the Silver Streak rescues her, brings her back, she tips him off that that Sheik is about to launch a sneak attack. The Silver Streak goes and stops that attack, including some of the falconers that were doing some sport out there and they're setting that up but he gets that wrapped up nicely and then is reminded at the last possible minute that oh yes he's in a race meanwhile sir cedric is ready to declare himself the victor there's only half an hour left the silver streak races across the rest of the world beats him there wins the day and while they're sitting there celebrating a member of the crowd is murdered and the silver streak will have to investigate in the next issue 
This is a pretty entertaining story. It's like a lot of the Flash and Superman races that would come well, quite a bit later than this. This one is cover dated September 1940, and is almost certainly an inspiration for those where Flash and Superman start off, but then they end up saving people along the way because they just can't walk away and leave it alone, which makes the close race or tie at the end just a little more ambiguous. And one curiosity that came up when I was doing research behind this is that the Silver Streak first appears in Silver Streak's comics issue 3. So one of these days I'm going to have to go back and find out who the heck appears in those first two issues and why they decided to call it Silver Streak Comics when they didn't have a Silver Streak yet. That wraps up the Silver Streak story in this issue. Next up is a four-page adventure of the Skywolf. The Skywolf appears to be some sort of flyer. If this is the first issue, there's no background given. From what I've been able to dig up online, particularly at justnevins.com, the Skywolf is a guy named Paul Smith. He was a Polish individual. He lost his wife and child in a Nazi attack, and he devised a special plane to help defend others from the air. So in this one, he witnesses an attack by a strange creature on a fishing boat. I don't know why he was calling it a creature. They put a face on it, but the way it's drawn, it is clearly a plane riveted together that just has a face on the front. And he sees it through his televisio device, which for September 1940 issue is actually pretty impressive. It's long before the popularization of technology, although the technology clearly existed. So it's not unheard of, but it does mean that the writers were probably doing their research and looking ahead at that sort of thing. So when he goes to attack the creature, his bullets miss from incredibly short range. The creature breathes fire at his aircraft and drives it down. He barely recovers before a crash and pursues the creature, only to find himself pulled to the ground by a magnetic device of some kind. There are smugglers down there who know exactly who he is and want him to join them in their operation, which is based on plastic equipment and magnetic defenses. He refuses to go along they lock him up. He breaks out using some small explosives that he had on him. Apparently they locked him up without searching him. He recovers his plane that was unguarded, uses it to bomb their artillery before they can defend against him, and that basically wraps up the smuggling ring. So I'm not sure why he thought it was a creature. It did look very much like a plane. If it was made out of plastic, I don't know why it was jawed with the rivets all over it. I don't know why it doesn't melt when it breathes fire. This story is not a great story. Next, we have a six-page adventure for Bill Wayne, the Texas Terror. So he's a Texas Ranger. In this story, Nick Carrow is a city crook who wants to set up shop in the West, but Bill Wayne will have none of that. When he's reading the newspaper reports about the murder, which makes me wonder what kind of ranger he is if he needs to go to the newspapers to find out there's been a murder, he specifically says, well, this looks like city crooks, and no city thugs are going to get away with anything out here. When he heads out on patrol, he sees a car, so obviously this must be where he'll find them city folk. He charges in and fights them, although they do get the drop on him and beat him up, as well as beat up a local rancher who won't pay their protection money. When he recovers, the rancher lets him know what's going on. I don't know how long Bill Wayne was out, because when he comes to, the rancher has his head wrapped in bandages, he's in bed, and yet the crooks are still just outside, so Bill Wayne can grab his horse and start chasing after them. As he's gaining ground, chasing their car, when they get out of the car and board the plane, he manages to gain ground on that, and he boards the small aircraft as it's taking off, gets inside, and beats up the passengers to bring them in. There are a few interesting choices here. The color schemes throughout are all 
combinations of pink and red instead of the four color comics. It's basically white and shades of red. It does suit the Western motif. It's just a little unusual to see that. Certainly today, it would be very unusual. It doesn't feel very much like a Western, though, since all the criminals are using modern technology, including the 1940s cars and the small aircraft. It just feels more like Bill Wayne, the Texas Terror is a relic than an actual Western, since it's not set in the 1800s. It was set in the 1940s, so he's basically a Western sheriff 50 years out of date. He does get the job done, but it just, to me, feels like we need... A little something, either if you're going to go Western, set it in the Western, or if you're going to do it in the modern West, have modern Western police. Bill Wayne, the Texas Ranger, is followed by a two-page prose piece. Prose stories were fairly common back in this day. If you were a purely visual magazine, then you paid higher rates for mailing and postage than if you're a prose magazine with visual content. So most comics had a couple of almost throwaway pages. Some of them clearly weren't edited. You go back to Tales of Suspense issues and you'll have the first page of a two-page story reprinted twice and no second page, or the second page of a different story that appeared in a different issue and other errors like that. They included them to include page rates and then they realized that if they did letters columns or editor's pieces or stand soapbox or things or direct currents, things like that, they would also qualify for the lower postage rates. So that's what they shifted to. In this case, the two-page prose story is a Western story. The gunslinger walks into town, he goes to a restaurant, finds out that the man who killed his father and tried to kill him to take over the water rights in the area is still alive and running the roost. And a local restaurateur manages this exposition by having the conversation going, oh yeah, you look just like your dad, I thought you were dead too. So the guy goes and calls out the man who killed him and his father, and they have a shootout at 45 paces. And of course, the man who killed him and his father was a faster draw who fired off three shots before Jed Grimes, the mystery man who just came back to town, just slowly pulls his gun out and shoots him once and kills him on the spot. And, you know, the bar same restaurateur is going, hey, man, why'd you let him shoot first? You know, he was twice as fast as you. He said, yeah, but it's 45 yards away. He's going to be lucky if he can hit me at all. He really didn't have a chance. So he is a bit of a sharpshooter. We get that little bit of a twist ending. Big issue I have with that is that the story starts and ends in the Old West when this guy went from being a kid to growing up. The era of the Old West was a little under a decade when you actually go back and look at the years. It's been somewhat glamorized and it's been assumed to have been longer than that, but it's really hard to be both a child and an adult in the Old West era. The story itself is not too bad. It fills the quota and it's better than a lot of the ones that you see in these comics because these are ones that editorial didn't really care about. As long as they had something that existed, they qualified for the mailing rates and that's the reason they were there. Following that prose piece, we have another full-color story. This one is, again, eight pages, and it's about the Green Claw. This time it's named after the villain. The hero is Major Tarrant. I'm not quite sure what he's a major of based on this story, but when he hears the drums of the Green Claw, he knows that his adversary is still out there alive, and he needs to track him down. So he heads out towards the Green Claw's stronghold, and the Green Claw senses his approach and sends soldiers out to find them. First, he decoys them with a dummy so he can get further in, then he dresses himself as a dummy, and they ignore the dummy, thinking, well, we're not going to fall for the same trick twice, when it's not the same trick. And it's the Green Claw himself who tracks down Major Tarrant with a radio transducer. Tarrant's okay with that. His plan was to get close enough to the Green Claw to just shoot him with his pistol. Turns out the Green Claw is protected by a series of heat waves and other radiation, so the bullet just melts. Then we get to the point where it seems that writer and artist Jack Cole doesn't quite understand what hypnotism really is, because the Green Claw hypnotizes Major Tarrant 
into the size of a doll and puts him inside a metal box, and when the hypnosis wears off and Tarrant grows, the box will not grow and Tarrant will be crushed. Thankfully, Tarrant is able to punch through the mesh in the box when he's unattended, grab a tiny little vial of acid that's right next to it that he can still hold while he's doll size, and use that to dissolve his way out of the box so when the hypnosis wears off, he returns to full size and he's free. And while he was imprisoned, he was shown the Green Claw's plan, which is to take a series of robots and use them to conquer the world. Major Tarrant sneaks up behind the Green Claw now that he's free, pulls on the rug underneath him, and trips the Green Claw onto the metal robot so that his heat field that protects him ends up melting the robots, which is a nice little touch of turning the enemy's defenses against him. Tarrant leaves instead of staying to fight the Green Claw directly, manages to hijack a plane to escape before he's captured, and uses the plane to bomb the encampment. The Green Claw survives, but most of his men are gone, and he swears vengeance, and we will see the story continue in the next issue. So this one was fairly entertaining. The hypnosis bit bugs me a little bit, because it just doesn't work, but you could always say, well, the Green Claw just made him perceive it that way, and he was going to try and hypnotize him into believing he was crushed. Don't know exactly how that works, but I do like the way he turned the heat shield against the Green Claw. The next story here is another eight-page full-color story, and this is the one that inspired the choice for this particular issue as part of the Golden Age Greats podcast. Now, to be honest, I was just assuming it was great when I made that selection. I hadn't read it before. I was reading it because I was primarily interested in this character, the Golden Age Daredevil. So I am a big fan of the modern Daredevil. He is easily my favorite comic book character. So when I found out that he was actually inspired in part by this guy, I wanted to track him down. Now, I say inspired in part because it was a case of Marvel jumping on a dead property. This comic was published by Liv Gleason Publications. When they went bankrupt, well, they couldn't defend their copyrights and their trademarks, so Marvel jumped in to grab that trademark and use it, just as they did with Captain Marvel, with Black Widow, and with a couple of other characters. So the modern Daredevil, who is a blind acrobat who fights with a billy club, which at one point could turn into a boomerang, and whose original outfit was primarily yellow, but with darker pieces that could be blue, red, or brown, depending on how it appeared to be colored in a given issue. It was very, very dark, was inspired by this character. So this Daredevil has his origin told in one page at the start of it. When he was a child, his father was an inventor. A bunch of thugs came to steal one of his inventions. They fought back, the thugs killed his parents, and they scarred him with a brand on his chest that was in the shape of a boomerang. And the trauma caused him to become mute. The mute part apparently only lasts for this issue, so by the time we get to Silver Street Comics number 7, or finally to Daredevil's own title, then he's no longer mute. But the idea of having some sort of handicap or limitation did carry through to the Matt Murdock Daredevil. That's what it was inspired by. This character is also acrobatic. He fights with a boomerang, which was training inspired by the scar on his chest. He originally had a two-tone yellow and blue costume, which is anti-symmetric. So vertical line right down the middle. One side is primarily yellow with some blue bits. The other side is blue where there was yellow and yellow where there was blue. It wouldn't take more than a couple of issues before that yellow color scheme was replaced by red. So some similarities in the costume there. We also get some similarities in the subtitle attached to this character. While the Silver Age Daredevil or the Matt Murdock one is Daredevil the Man Without Fear, the Golden Age character was the Daredevil Master of Courage. So again, some similarities here. In this case, the Daredevil story is written by Don Rico under the alias Captain Cook. So he's actually writing it as Captain Cook had relayed the story to another witness. With pencils and inks by Jack Binder or Binder, I'm not really clear on how to pronounce that. But this Bart Hill Daredevil 
is also one of the earliest instances of thought bubbles. The thought bubbles are thought balloons, as far as I can tell, started in early 1940, so around the May or June mark. I've been able to pin down exactly what the earliest example was, and this issue hit with the cover date of September 1940, which is no more than three months after Captain Marvel was using them in Wiz Comics number five. And even then, it wasn't quite the fully formed thought balloon that we have today, and it was even labeled as a thought balloon to communicate to the readers, that's what this is. So in this issue, Joe Ripper is a villain, as is Rico, and they're out there trying to get control of gangs and the criminal underground through gambling rings and whatnot. Daredevil finds out about this, and he intervenes to stop them. He ends up tearing a gambling establishment apart and ready to rip the rest of them apart. They think they've gotten away. He's still there listening when he overhears them planning to get together with another gang. They're looking for reinforcements to help them defend against Daredevil. Daredevil says, hey, I can get rid of two gangs at once. That's fine. And he does that. He tracks them down and uses his acrobatic abilities, his boomerang, and some improvised weaponry he found in the area to take them out, wrap them up, and deliver them all to the police. So I do see some similarities between this Daredevil and the one that we know from today. Not just in terms of the colors of the costumes and the fact that it is very much a skin-tight costume with a double D motif, although the double D on this one is just above the belt and the belt is spiked, but also in the fact that the costume covers most of his body, so Matt Murdock's mouth and chin are exposed. In this one, it's just the eyes and mouth. Even the chin is wrapped up in this costume. Again, it's very simple and elegant in terms of the design, which was not at all uncommon in this day. A lot of them were inspired by the wrestlers of the time. But it's more his attitude. He's out there doing the swashbuckling thing as he's tearing through guys in battle. And he's ready to just let them all come ahead and bring them all on. He can take them, no problem. So it is pretty similar in that regard to the modern character. And it is a well-told story. This one is quite easy to recommend, especially if you're interested at all in the modern character. Following Daredevil, there's an adventure of Lance Hale, who appears to be a Tarzan ripoff. We don't get an origin story, but he's a white man fluent in English who's living in the jungles. He finds a lost boy who's about to be attacked by a lion, and Lance Hale leaps into action, killing the lion, and he seems to adopt the young boy. Right off the bat, he feeds him. They're attacked by an adult elephant, and Lance Hale jumps over and kills him. They find the baby elephant, so apparently they got between a mother and its young, and Lance's response is, okay, well, he'll make a good pet, and gives the baby elephant to Jackie, who promptly names him and rides him. Later on, Jackie comes back to camp with a gun. Lance asks him where he got it. He says, from the cabin over there. Lance figures, oh, if there's guns and cabins, that means white men, and white men in the jungle are always trouble. So he heads out to the cabin, and sure enough, this is an ivory smuggling ring and an ivory poaching ring. So with the help of some local tribesmen and Jackie with his new pet baby elephant, they round these guys up. They don't bring them to the authorities. They just kill them. And then that's the happy ending. And the issue promises more exciting adventures with Lance and Jackie next issue. So it appears the young boy named Jackie is now going to be a recurring member of the cast. The eight-page Lance Hale story is followed by a seven-page Ace Powers story. Ace Powers is again rendered in the white, red, and pink color scheme. So this is the other side of the page because of the way they were folded and cut in the printing process. And this one appears to be part of an ongoing saga. There's already some action when he's been fighting the Panther Men and they've been tracking these guys down. The Panther Man is also referred to as the Spook. He seems to have magical powers as he's throwing strange creatures and skeleton men at Ace Power. But Ace Power, the detective, doesn't do a lot of detective work. He's more a man of action, finding a secret passage, going inside to a torture chamber, fighting the skeleton men, fighting some sort of giant scorpion creature. 
and he does think his way through traps, so he is intelligent in puzzle solving, just not so much detective work and following clues to track things down. He's just following people he's watching. Now that could be because this is late in the serialized story, or that could just be the general nature that they want to keep it as a high action strip, because there is a lot of action here. But this one is generally entertaining. It is just doesn't feel like a detective strip. It feels more like a classic Indiana Jones strip. So if you're a fan of Indiana Jones and want to see something similar, maybe heading out and tracking down these classic Silver Street comics is not a bad place to start. So the Adventure of Ace Powers is followed by a one-page Momentous Mites passage. It's a little illustrated piece of what appears to be some form of history, saying that throwing snowballs caused the Boston Massacre. In 1770, Boston was still greatly irritated by the taxes and restrictions which had been passed by the British Parliament in 1766. Most of the tax laws had been revoked, but English troops still held the Custom House. The colonists claimed that the taxes were used in Europe, and that the quartering of soldiers in private dwellings was oppressive. On the evening of March 5, 1770, a group of youths began to pelt a sentry with snowballs. The guard was called out. A crowd gathered. In the excitement, an officer yelled a command which the soldiers thought was the order fire. Muskets blazed. Four Americans fell dead. The officer and his men were promptly turned over to the civil authorities. All were exonerated with the exception of two privates. These two men were convicted and branded in the palms of the hands as punishment. And that's the entire thing. Next up is a full-color story. It's the adventure of Captain Keen and his assistant Nerma as they fight what are initially described as starfish people, but then octopus people as they're referred to in the story. So they're flying their spacecraft when they see a strange planet in the distance and are overcome by a weird feeling of weakness and nausea and pass out. They wait to learn they've been captured by the rulers of an octopus race on an entirely watery planet that travels through space, pillaging and conquering. They take the lovely human to be her queen, and they put Captain Keen down in the rest with the other male slaves that they've accumulated. Keen manages to escape and sends out a radio warning asking other humans to evaporate the water using heat rays from a distance, which drives the octopus people underground and saves the day by essentially genocide, destroying everyone on the planet. I'm also trying to figure out why a species of octopus people would have evolved in such a way that they refer to themselves as repulsive and to Nerma as pretty. I mean, yeah, that's true by the reader's standards, but I would expect that a race of evolved octopus people would be attracted by other octopus people and not by members of other species. The final story in the issue is another one by Jack Cole. It's Dickie Dean, Boy Inventor, an eight-page story in full color. This was actually the most pleasant surprise of the issue, and probably was the most entertaining story in the bench. In this one, a plane crashes into Dickie's father's chemical laboratory, releases a very powerful acid that destroys the whole thing, and the family is ruined. And Dickie's friend Zip suggests that maybe he could sell one of his inventions. Dickie's problem is that every invention he's created so far has already been given to the government. He's never invented for profit before, but then he has an idea for forwarding avionics by finding a plane that can stop and start in the middle of the air at will instead of having to fly and land at dangerous speeds. So after many weeks, he creates what looks like a flying bathtub and is described by other characters as a flying bathtub, but it does have the ability to hover. He first starts describing it to someone who throws him out of the office, then he flies back in through the window in it, and the guy takes him up on the offer. When they're going out for a test run, the corrupt businessman has ordered his own employees to get rid of the kids and claim that they made the invention so they don't have to pay for it and can just make a mint. But Dickie and Zip are able to save themselves, even though one of their attackers dies immediately and the other one dies just after admitting that, yeah, it was the kids who created the invention. Dickie's able to build a second model, sells it to another entrepreneur for $50,000, which in 1940 
has got to be an even bigger chunk of change than it is today. And, you know, he goes to home to give the check to his parents because that's why he was doing it was to help the family out. And dad initially says, no, we can't take your money when mom says, look, he's heartbroken. Let's take it. So they do. It ends with a half page of Dickie's inventions with instructions for how someone at home could build an ant farm. And the instructions do seem complete enough and careful enough that, yeah, if you're paying attention, you could build an ant farm based on what you see in this comic. I'm very impressed not just with the storytelling in terms of the plotting, but also in terms of the way things are laid out on the page, uh, particularly the sequence where Dickie's working through the weeks and there's the calendar pages going through and some other levels of abstraction. I do like the fact that it's not just the classic chauvinistic when the factory is destroyed. Dickie's dad is saying that the thing he feels worst about is what this is going to mean to Dickie's mother who made so many sacrifices so he can get ahead and now they've got nothing. So this was one of the more enjoyable stories and it's very easy to recommend. And that wraps up the second episode of the Golden Age Greats podcast where we examined Silver Street Comics number six. It was quite enjoyable and I'm hoping that we get more like this assuming that this is the podcast that wins the vote. Now should it win from this point forward comics would be selected pretty much at random. I might pull out the first appearance of Plastic Man first especially after enjoying Jack Cole's work so much in this issue. But for the most part, it's going to be either random selections from spreadsheets or user requests. And again, all of the comics that we're going to be looking at are those that are in the public domain as identified and archived by www.digitalcomicmuseum.com. They do great stuff. Definitely go check them out. In the meantime, don't forget to join us again tomorrow for the next episode of Daredevil's Advocate, in which Anthony Stauffer and I debate whether it's Daredevil or Iron Fist, who is the greatest comic book character of all time. We will follow that with character compare and contrast, comparing the Hal Jordan Green Lantern with the Richard Rider Nova, and wrap it up on Saturday with the second chapter in the Great Runs series, where I look at the next few issues in Walt Simonson's run on Thor. So please join us for those, and remember to come back on Saturday and into next week as we do voting on which of these podcasts is the series that's going to continue in the long term. Thank you for listening.